listening to Politics Weekly. To uh, be big underdogs uh, in the race uh, for the uh, the presidency. One of them is uh, joining me today. We can survive all those systems. What's going to happen if you legalize it completely? Politics Weekly is a podcast on politics, news, and principles. everyone this week we have two different segments on today's episode first we have an exclusive interview with conservative activist Laura Loomer uh, and second uh, we have a discussion uh, about the news of the week with Erica Savage all right everybody welcome back to politics weekly uh, this week I am t- I have an exclusive we have an exclusive interview right now uh, with prominent uh, conservative uh, activist uh, Laura Loomer. Uh, Laura Loomer, of course, she made headlines uh, for a number of things uh, back when, uh, I think about a year ago, um, she uh, she went to Congress and she was protesting, um, she was protesting uh, Twitter censorship. Um, and of course, there was a video that went viral when Billy Long, the uh, the congressman uh, from Missouri, made uh, uh, I believe it was uh, auctioneer sounds uh, to try and drown that all out, um, she also um, disrupted uh, the Shakespeare in the Park. Um, but uh, one of the things she's uh, most well known for is she was banned controversially. Uh, from Twitter, um, uh, and I believe uh, Facebook and uh, other outlets. Am I correct? Yes, I am now banned on every single social media platform, including First of all, thank you for joining me today. Um, but the first question um, I have is: uh, You've uh, said uh, you think that, uh, in terms of the the censorship, you've said that you um, think that President Trump uh, should do something to deal with this. What action specifically do you think President Trump can take? Uh, in regards to this matter? Well, I don't know if there's anything that President Trump can do himself because he doesn't pass legislation as the president, but I think that President Trump can encourage, as the leader of the free world, the social media companies to stop censoring conservatives and to stop um, exercising political bias. And he can also encourage members of Congress to pass legislation uh, to, uh, you know, either either modify uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which protects these companies as platforms instead of publishers, or to uh, start uh, further investigating and ordering uh, the tech executives like Jack Dorsey and Zuckerberg to return to Congress to testify. 
And ultimately, I think they should start um, upholding the law because it's clear that Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl Sanders committed perjury when they told Congress that they're not censoring conservatives when over the last few weeks we are receiving countless um, examples of, of, of censorship and also insider whistleblowers uh, from within these tech companies coming out and providing documentation that, in fact, they are censoring conservatives. Um. Now, do you believe that the government uh, should introduce legislation to uh, restrict Facebook uh, in regards to, or regulate them in regards to who they can or cannot ban? Uh, yeah, I think that these companies need to be held accountable. I think that the Civil Rights Act in this country needs to be updated to include protections against uh, discriminating against people for their political affiliation. And I think that these companies need to be broken up because they are clearly so powerful that they're driving certain people out of business. They are um, they are banning political speech. They are now interfering in elections by banning certain people running for office around the world. Um, they are allowing terrorist organizations to be on the platform while branding me as a terrorist and a dangerous person. So, yeah, I think that these companies definitely do need to be broken up or that their executives need to be held accountable, whether that's through anti-trust um, violation, uh, hearings, or I know that the that Congress is conducting an antitrust investigation, it's a big test, but, um, you know, people need to be held accountable. Um, now, many argue that this would be uh, overly intrusive and an example of big government regulating private business. Do you agree with this? Why or why not? because they take us against conservative values or conservative principles and, and it violates the free market, right? But I think that when you have a social media company that is an American company giving a platform to terrorist organizations, right, then that's when the government needs to step in because you now have a social media company protected in America, right, an American company um, aiding and abetting Islamic terrorist organizations and other dangerous individuals who are plotting against the United States. And so, uh, like I said, I think that, that a lot of these executives need to be held accountable. I think that they shoot guards for aiding and abetting terrorist organizations. Um, I filed a lawsuit against Twitter and CARE uh, about a month or so ago because uh, the Wall Street Journal reported in January that the Council on American Islamic Relations, CARE, lobbied Facebook and Twitter to ban me. Well, CARE has been designated as a terrorist organization in the United Arab Emirates, and was found by federal judges in the United States uh, during the Holy Land Foundation terrorism trials to have been supporting Hamas, okay? So that's a terrorist organization that our government, of course, recognizes as an Islamic terrorist group. And so you have a problem here. And that's what I mean about, um, you know, it's not, it's not just as black and white as people may think it is. There's other ways to go around it. And the basis of my lawsuit against Twitter and Care is tortious interference, right? So there's many different ways to pursue these companies legally, um, you know, regardless of whether people are in favor of regulation or not. But when you when you look at the greater aspects, right, not just the free speech element, but the fact that they are platform terrorist organizations and doing other sinister things, right, platforming pedophiles, that's when the government needs to step in, right? Because because now you have companies that are that are violating the law, 
right? It's, it's against the law to participate in child pornography. It's against the law to aid in the best care of organization. Um, now, earlier this year, you had uh, your press pass evoked from the Conservative Political Action Committee uh, for heckling CNN anchor Oliver Darcy. You said that Oliver Darcy was trying to advocate for Alex Jones to be deplatformed and that he should respect your freedom of speech. Um, but uh, does... Um, However, does he get the freedom of speech to say uh, whether you should be deplatformed or not? Well, Oliver Darcy, right? Oliver Darcy is, um, like you mentioned, the CNN reporter who uh, has openly, right, openly admitted to working to get Alex Jones and other conservatives to be platformed. And here he is, right, in the press room at CPAC, and I confronted him about it because uh, when Alex Jones was banned on Twitter, Twitter and Oliver Darcy and CNN all tweeted it at the same time. So I was simply doing my job as a journalist, right, and a credentialed member of the press at CPAC, asking Oliver questions as to what his relationship was with Twitter, especially financially, and whether he thought it was ethical for him as a journalist to be working to shut down other journalists and their First Amendment rights. And so, you know, he and his other left-wing cohorts from the SPLT and right-wing watch accused me of harassment, and then I got kicked out of CPAC. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's funny, right? It's funny how these how these people will cry and scream and if their rights get infringed upon, right? But they're constantly looking to shut other people down. And if Oliver Darcy were to have been kicked out of CPAC, or if Oliver Darcy were to be banned, you know, you could bet that he'd be, he'd be uh, picking up a storm and, and, and making a fuss about it as well. So, it's just this constant sense of double standard and hypocrisy that comes from the left and the fake news media and, you know, the establishment left and right. We have problems within our own conservative movement, too. You have the establishment, which cowers to these people, right, instead of fighting back and, and, and combating um, Now, I want to move on to uh, another issue. Um, after the Santa Fe school shooting... Um, you said via Twitter, you said, quote, students at the Santa Fe High School uh, just got shot up, uh, or, you sa- or you said that they had an active shooter drill a, uh, a couple weeks ago, according to Sky News, and you said, it seems like these shootings always happen right after these active shooting drills take place, kind of reminds me of Parkland. Uh, were you insinuating that the Parkland school shooting and the Santa Fe uh, school shootings uh, were staged? No, not at all, right? And so what you have here is you have the left-wing media using a very valid observation that I made uh, to attack me and falsely smear me as, um, as, as a proponent of false flag theories, right? And I never said, I never said that Parkland or the Santa Fe shootings were false flags. I said, oh, well, it turns out that in Parkland, Florida, just about a week or two before this shooting, and oh, there was one at this school, and then you know several other places. And I said, oh, it's really interesting. Like maybe some got to explore them because maybe, right? Like maybe some of these active shooter drills are causing psychological um, issues in people, and maybe they're inspiring people to actually commit school shootings, right? When people uh, learn the route and they go through these school shooting drills and they learn how to leave the building if there is an active shooter. And so, you know, if you have 
shooting. And so that's all I was trying to say, right, is that I found it to be kind of interesting. Like, there was a pattern in both cases. But uh, unfortunately, the media, that's what they do. They just smear me. So I'm sure. Um, now, you appeared uh, in a video with Jacob Wool, uh, where Wool claims that you and him were riding around in armored cars uh, in Minneapolis with bodyguards out of fear that Democratic Minnesota Congresswoman Ilan Omar uh, would send someone after you. Uh, do you believe that there is a serious reality that uh, Ilan Omar... Uh, might do something like that. Yeah, I think that Gilhan Omar is a very dangerous individual, as well as many other of the Democrat politicians in Minnesota who are corrupt and have abused their power. We're talking about a woman who advocated for nine men accused of joining ISIS, right, in Minnesota and going overseas to join ISIS to be released and to have lighter sentences, okay? Here, we have who campaigned with, with uh, Ilhan Omar, who is now serving as the Attorney General, the first Muslim Attorney General, who is, and you may have seen my, my investigative report that came out a few weeks ago, he's giving advice to ISIS-type mosques in Minnesota and radical leftist organizations on how they can report conservative, independent journalists to the executives of uh, social media companies like YouTube, for example, to get them banned. And so if you have someone like Keith Ellison in Minnesota who's considered to be the top cop, right, in his position as attorney general, and he is actively aiding an ISIS-type mosque, right, and is actively aiding a mosque whose imam has openly called for the killing of Jews, advocated for suicide bombings and things of that nature, yeah, I think that I think that there is a reason why people should be able to protect themselves and feel like they need to... Um, you know, ride around with enhanced security. And I don't have a problem with people wanting to protect themselves. Minnesota is now the number one ISIS recruitment uh, spot in the United States. The place is swarming with Somali migrants. It's swarming with Muslims, okay? You go to the grocery store, it's like you see in some communities, like women in full-blown burqas and niqabs, okay? Some of these politicians aren't even speaking English directly to constituents because they have so many migrants in their communities. And if you watched on election night where some of these Somali immigrants in Minnesota were elected, right, they didn't even give their acceptance speeches in English, okay? And so it's becoming a very uncomfortable, unsafe um, environment for people who are not necessarily Somali, people who aren't necessarily Muslim, and people who... Um, you know, want to expose Islam and the Islamification crisis in Minnesota. Now, um, in the same live stream, Wall said something which many people uh, implied that he was saying that um, there were Sharia police uh, in certain Somali communities. Um, is there any truth to that? to the West, 
they like to say that when you use the word Sharia law, you're you're promoting a conspiracy, right? Or this idea that Muslims want to take over is somehow a conspiracy. But if you read documents that have actually been obtained by the FBI, right? For example, um, in a in a 2003 raid in Annandale, Virginia, um, in the home of uh, Ismail Abdurrahman, who was a um, senior Muslim Brotherhood official, you see that some of these documents, one in particular called the Explanatory Memorandum, outlines uh, the Muslim plan to take over America. Okay, and these are documents that, like I said, were obtained in FBI raids. It's not a conspiracy. These are things that our law enforcement agencies and national security advisors are supposed to be monitoring and documenting. And so, you know, other people's ignorance and their refusal to learn this stuff and their lack of knowledge about what the explanatory memorandum is doesn't mean that I'm a conspiracy theory. Maybe these people just need to get educated. Um, okay, and final question. Um is uh, what advice would you give to other conservatives uh, uh, dealing with e- being either censored uh, or banned uh, from certain social media sites? Well, keep on raising awareness about it, right? And just because they ban you doesn't mean you need to, like, go away and, and shut up and do nothing. You know, Thank you, uh, Laura Loomer. Before you go, do you want to tell people where you can be found? All right. Thank you again, again for joining me uh, today. Um, uh, there we go. Coming July 9th. I think that as a society, that's something that we should be striving for. 50 episodes. I guess cautiously optimistic would be my view. Four unlikely guests. I feel like it's just all purely political. One epic celebration. The 50th episode of Politics Weekly, an epic four-person roundtable celebration, coming July 8th on the Nolan Cleary Network, on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Okay, that last segment was uh, of conservative activist Laura Loomer, but now we are here with Erica Kate Savage. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. And it's, um, minor correction, it's Erica Savage Wilson, but sorry, no worries. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, so tell us a little bit about your podcast and your political affiliation. Sure. So thank you. So I have a podcast. The name of it is Savage Politics, which is definitely a play on my um, my name, which is my um, maiden name. And uh, my political affiliation is Lifelong Democrat. And really happy to be on your show today, Nolan. All right. Thank you. So why don't we 
get into the news. Uh, so uh, the uh, lineup for the Democratic uh, National uh, Committee debate, or the uh, the lineup for the Democratic debate for president, have been um, have been set up. Uh, of yep. course, not this uh, Wednesday, next Wednesday, and yep. next Wednesday, uh, both of the debates will be held um, mm-hmm. in Miami, Florida. And the lineup has officially been um, uh, unveiled. Uh, we know that on the first night, uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth War- uh, Warren, uh, yeah. former Texas Representative Beto O'Rourke, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, Former Housing and Urban uh, Development Secretary, also former uh, Antonio, San Antonio, Texas Mayor Julian Castro, Hawaii mm-hmm. Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, Washington Governor and former Congressman Jay Inslee, uh, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, former Maryland Representative John Delaney, and Ohio Representative Tim Ryan will all be featured. The second night. <laughs> Uh, former Vice President and former Delaware Senator Joe Biden, Vermont Senator uh, and former Congressman Bernie Sanders, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Senator Kamala Harris from California, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, author Marianne Williamson, California Representative Eric Swalwell, businessman Andrew Yang, and former Colorado Governor John Hickenloop will all be featured. Uh, notably absent uh, are uh, Miramir, Florida Mayor uh, Wayne Messam, who we had on our show, of course. Yeah. Um, former Alaska Senator Mike Gravel, uh, and most controversially, uh, uh, for, uh, Montana Governor Steve Bullock. Uh, right now, Bullock mm-hmm. uh, got snubbed. Um, what happened was there was a little bit of controversy because he met the polling qualification, but the third poll that he originally qualified for, he ended up not qualifying for because it wasn't, it was too open-ended. Right. Um, what are your thoughts on the debate lineup um, for, uh, for this debate? Well, first kudos to you, Nolan, for calling out all 23 candidates and then the 20 that will uh, be on stage both on Wednesday and Thursday, as you mentioned, June 26th and 27th. And it's it's really interesting to see that um, Senator Elizabeth Warren is going to be on the Wednesday night debate, um, kind of bookending how they have it listed, um, Cory Booker and Julian Castro. So she kind of adds um, some level of uh, strength to that first lineup since uh, she counted, she's polling um, pretty well. Um, and um, then the, the Thursday night debate, you've got, as you named, you've got Senator Kamala Harris, you have Biden, you have um, Senator Sanders. Um, so you have like really heavy hitters. So I'm really interested to see how that will play out, particularly since Biden is polling at 32% right now. Um, and then you have Buttigieg um, and um, Senator Harris um, polling at 8% um, equally, um, as it's been noted. So I'm, I'm really excited about the debate, um, primarily because even though it is the summer months and um, unless people are politicals like you or I are really just have a people don't start paying attention to 
these types of um, activities until September. So um, as exhausted as that list is, we have to remember that this is something that we saw um, with the Republicans um, when back in the 2016 general election. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this dynamic plays out across the Democratic field. Um, also, they announced that Rachel Maddow will be one of the anchors uh, mm-hmm. in the debates. What are your thoughts on that? I love Rachel Maddow. Um, she's a really fair reporter, very exhaustive. And I think it's also really helpful to have um, a woman who has um, a strong analysis around politics present. Um, so I'm really excited about her being one of the moderators. All right. So why don't we uh, move on then? So the next uh, story is involving the Senate races uh, in 2020. Uh, Of course, in 2020, Republicans would like to try and take back the U.S. House of Representatives. Democrats would like to take back the U.S. Senate. Democrats need uh, three seats to take back the Senate if they win the presidency. They need four if they lose the presidency. Uh, One of the places they are currently targeting um, is, of course, Iowa. Um, Mm -hmm. Donald Trump won the state by 10 points uh, in 2016, but Barack Obama also won the state in 2012. Joni Ernst is running for a second term. Uh, We Mm -hmm. now know that the second major Democratic candidate, Teresa Greenfield, has announced she will run. She was a candidate for U.S. House of Representatives in Iowa's third district in 2018. Um, another place uh, Democrats would like to pick up is in Maine. Uh, this is a state that both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama carried um, in 2016 and 2012. Um, Susan Collins uh, is up there. This uh, mm-hmm. race got a lot more national name recognition after um, uh, Collins re- after Collins voted controversially to confirm Justice Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Yeah, um, I believe we actually had two of the candidates running against her on our show. Um, but right now, Betty Sweet, the former uh, president of the Maine's Women's uh, Lobby, who was also a candidate for governor in 2018, just announced that she will be the first major candidate to challenge Susan uh, Collins on the left. Uh, and mm-hmm. finally... Uh, in the state of Michigan, this is a state where this is a seat where Republicans would actually like to pick this up and expand their majority. Uh, mm-hmm. Right now, Gary Peters um, is uh, running for a second term. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the sitting Democrat, um, but he's being challenged uh, by John James. John James, who was the nominee for U.S. Senate um, in 2018. Uh, he lost by a closer-than-expected margin to uh, uh, Debbie Stabenow. Uh, he has announced that he will run again for the Republican nomination, and he will challenge Gary Peters, who is running for a second term. Um, what are your thoughts on these Senate uh, updates? Well, um, you know, as you mentioned, um, so right now our Senate is at uh, fifty-three forty-seven, and so. Democrats have 12 incumbent seats. So those seats are really precious. They need to be protected at all costs. And so um, going back to um, Gary Peters and Joni Ernst, as you mentioned, respectively in Michigan and Iowa, 
very interesting. Both of their terms um, started practically at the same time. One a Democrat and one is um, Republican. Um, Senator Ernst has um, polled to be pretty popular. Um, so um, if uh, whatever Democratic challenger um, that may um, um, looking to unseat her definitely um, has some ground to cover. But it's really interesting because Iowa is now a state that folks are looking at um, to um, maybe turn blue, maybe not in this com- um, election cycle. Um, but of course, in the Senate, we've got class one, class two, class three. So it could be um, another class. But Trump won that state by nine points in 2016. And so you just had him and Joe Biden that were there. They're really um, talking to the rural community in Iowa. So that's looked at as a strength for Democrats. So if Democrats are able to cover the rural community um, pretty strongly in Iowa, that state could be up for play. That remains to be seen. And with uh, Gary Peters, also a freshman Democrat um, in Michigan, he's really going to have to um, fight to keep that seat and just really hoping that um, he gets the funding that he needs. But then um, just looking kind of largely at the entire map, there are states that aren't um, considered competitive. And, you know, you're going from Alaska all the way to Wyoming. So I I also believe that um, this is why Democrats do need to go back to that 50 state strategy, because there should not be um, any states where Democrats don't believe that there's actually um, the probability that they could, if not win the state, at least gain a foothold in those states. So um, it's going to be pretty exciting to see um, who comes up, um, who comes up and, and gets the win. All right. Um, and what do you think are the chances that Democrats could turn Maine blue in the Senate race? I think it's probable. I, I really think it's probable. Um, the Senate races don't, it's not something um, that Democrats largely bake into um, communicating to their base as being important. And so I think that um, if the um, kind of the attention, the awareness is also um, forked over into the Senate races, which are really um, important because the goal is to get Senate uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to unseat him. Like, that's not something that's going to happen in this next election cycle. But um, the more the public is educated on not just the importance of the presidency, but um, the legislative branch of the House, specifically Congress, um, that um, is able to hold a president accountable for impeachment, which is something that's being discussed um, even now. That, that that the attention and, and support and um, the funding for that um, will definitely be ticked up. All right. So uh, let's move on across the pond to uh, England. Uh, actually, <laughs> 10% of our uh, viewers or our listeners are from England. Uh, oh, awesome. Hey, London. Hey, England. <laughs> so um, right now, they're... Uh, the fight for Brexit is going on, and obviously yeah. Theresa May uh, has uh, announced that she's going to resign. Um, uh, we talked about, I know that happened a couple weeks ago, but we didn't get to co- talk about that in the last couple weeks on the episode. But also, uh, right now, there is a crowded uh, field uh, to try and uh, replace uh, her for, um, for uh, on the on. As Prime Minister right now, the Tories are trying to replace her. Uh, yeah. Having a leadership uh, race 
right now, uh, it looks like, um, as of this moment, it appears as though uh, Forrest Johnson uh, mm -hmm. is the front runner. Mm -hmm. um, Jeremy Hunt uh, er, is also uh, on the ballot. Uh, also, Michael Glove, uh, Michael Dove, uh, Dominic Rab, Syab uh, uh, Javid, uh, Rory Stort, Matt Hancock, Andrea Leedsom, Matt Har uh, Mark Harper, and Esther Mick uh, uh, V are all hoping uh, to win. But right now, it would appear as though Boris Johnson uh, is the leader in that race. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on the British leadership race for the Conservatives? Yeah, so you mentioned the Tories, so that's how the Conservative Party, um, to our friends across the pond, is widely known. And so um, just kind of, you know, the back, um, background on Boris Johnson, like um, having to keep in mind that he was the leader of the uh, Leave campaign, which we now know commonly referenced as Brexit, and that was back in 2016. So um, he also has had a long history in politics. You know, he served in parliament for two terms and then went on to be mayor of London for a couple of terms. Um, and quite interestingly, um, you mentioned the exit of um, Theresa May because she wasn't able to deliver the vote on Brexit that's been pushed and kind of kicked down the, the, um, the can is kind of being kicked down the road, as we would say in the U.S., regarding the Brexit decision. Um, and so um, while that is um, certainly something that you've got countries that are um, within the EU really um, concerned about um, maybe Boris Johnson leading their party uh, as the next UK prime minister, but also um, having to consider that, you know, while this is something that is happening and now that there's definitely been a lot that's been happening leading up to this point and um, to the um, also understanding that he served within her cabinet as well. So I do believe that the concerns that other European nations have about him possibly leading them and um, he's been um, very forthcoming about him wanting to exit from out of the European Union is definitely valid. Um, and that also um, Boris Johnson um, is unapologetic in those activities and in his beliefs. So um, Jeremy Hunt, I think it's about 10 people that are still in the running. Jeremy um, Hunt is definitely, um, in my opinion, a formidable candidate. I follow him on Twitter. Um, but the Conservative Party um, now um, effectively, I would say, being led by Boris Johnson definitely has um, a strong, strong chance of winning it um, because Theresa May um, was the PM and a member of the Conservative Party. And then the legacy would just continue with Boris Johnson uh, being in that seat up until they have their, uh, I believe, their general election in 2022. So um, it's you know, outside of the politics of the United States, I found it pretty interesting that I think it's only about 36% of Americans have passports. And so um, when you can think about that number and then you think about then the number of um, American residents that pay attention to what's happening to our friends across the pond and just different places around the world, I really um, believe that. I'm glad you had this subject to be discussed today that it's really imperative for us to not only um, be, um, 
um, entrenched in what's happening here domestically, um, though it seems to be overwhelming, but to also be able to connect what's happening here to what's happening to um, our friends globally as well. Um, okay, and uh, one more question before we move on. Uh, what do you think is the likelihood that this race is going to lead to a hard Brexit? I, I really believe that it, it will. Um, and again, that for me goes back to looking at Boris Johnson, who is um, a career politician, as we would say in the States, but someone who's, um, you know, been um, a member of parliament, then gone on to be mayor and then served in um, former um, PM May's, um, her cabinet, that um, his agenda has been widely known and he's expressed it freely, that that is definitely something that um, I would um, I would believe that that could possibly happen, you know, if he continues to, to lead, lead the votes um, in this race for um, prime minister. All right. So uh, why don't we uh, move on then? Uh, so... Uh, uh, recently, uh, it was announced that the uh, sitting press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, is going to be uh, resigning at the end of the month. Uh, Trump uh, put out a tweet uh, a couple days ago making the announcement saying, after, quote, after three and a half years, our wonderful Sarah Huckabee Sanders will be leaving the White House at the end of the month uh, and going home to the great state of Arkansas. She is a very special person with extraordinary talents who has done an incredible job. I hope she decides to run for governor of Arkansas. She would be fantastic. Sarah, thank you for a job well done. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Huckabee Sanders leaving the White House? Uh, uh, what do you think is next for Trump in terms of press secretaries? Um, and what do you think is the likelihood that she'll run for governor of Arkansas? Wow, three powerful questions. So um, I think that it is a luxury that she's been afforded to be able to resign um, from uh, her payment via the tax, um, tax paying um, Americans of approximately $170,000 a year for um, really carrying um, her boss's water um, and really entering into the discourse such spin uh, to where it's almost as though um, um, it kind of juxtaposed against kind of like um, memes. So, you know, it's just like these uh, short communiques, but not very exhaustive and not truthful. delivered on Twitter was really um, kind of telling us next steps. And so since her father, who is still referred to as the former governor of Arkansas, uh, I'm not surprised um, that um, if she uh, does, and I believe that she will run for governor. Um, and that's all that I have to say that, um, that I really um, care to say <laughs> about who held that position. But who is up next? Uh, who knows? Uh, it does, uh, you know, the threshold for 
this current administration is so low um, and uh, by definition, the nepotism, I, I, I would not be surprised if it were Tiffany Trump. So uh, it remains to be seen. I, I don't have anyone on my radar. I, I really um, am just um, kind of exhausted from um, having to um, to read um, so many think pieces around what she has injected and not just, you know, like she's done it alone uh, with either having um, briefings on the fly, um, in the driveway, uh, or just um, completely delayed or just not at all. I, I believe that the American people and just all of us as individuals just deserve better no matter what party is in power. And uh, again, that the threshold is so low, I, I would not be uh, shocked or surprised or uh, or thrown back um, as to who would um, who would uh, assume that position. But I do believe that there's definitely for the next administration, again, be it Democrat or Republican, there's definitely a level of trust that um, is going to have to be built back up in honor for that particular position. All right. Why don't we move on then? So uh, John Dean, the former White House counsel, uh, mm -hmm. testified in front of the U.S. House of Representatives uh, surrounding the Russia collusion case. Uh, of course, John Dean played a big role yeah. uh, in Watergate. Uh, he, during his testimony, he uh, said that there was evidence of collusion and said that there were many parallels uh, to draw between um, uh, there were many parallels to draw between uh, the two uh, between wow. Watergate and uh, the uh, the Russian uh, investigation. Uh, mm -hmm. However, he did the the choice of having him testify in front of Congress did receive uh, criticism from many Republicans uh, who believed that. Uh, the idea of having a man uh, or who believe that the idea of having John Dean uh, is just irrelevant, arguing that he was uh, in office or he, he was or arguing that Watergate happened multiple years ago and therefore having him on would be irrelevant in their minds. Uh, Representative Matt Gates from Florida said, uh, <laughs> quote, instead of opening the impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump, we have reopening uh, the impeachment inquiry potentially into Richard Nixon, sort of playing out their own version of that 70s show. You're here as a prop. What are your thoughts uh, on the John Dean testimony at Congress? So I'm going to start backwards, Nolan, and I had to giggle a bit when you called out Representative Gates' name. I think he should be more concerned with um, the standing of his uh, bar license um, as an attorney. So I, I just really, for me, for him to still be kind of like delivering snide commentary is um, is uh, laughable to me um, and unfortunate for the state of Florida and for Congress and for the American people largely. But with John Dean, what I find fascinating is that here we are 45 years later and he's offering testimony paralleling one administration that he served in to another one that he hasn't. So, you know, it's published, you know, his age, he's 80 years old. So to see that twice, um, to see 
where there was an actual impeachment and then that president resigned to um, there were kind of teetering um, to towards an inquiry or, inquiry or an actual impeachment. Um, I think that that says a lot. And so when reading the transcripts, um, because I'm a bit of a nerd in that area, I, I found it to be very fascinating, even with hearing the testimony, how it's so plainly laid out, um, the um, Watergate activities, and then um, what was read in the Mueller report, and not just with um, the sitting president, but with also folks that were a part of his campaign, you know, Michael Flynn, things of that nature. So I would um, definitely implore your listeners to um, pull up either C-SPAN or, you know, any of the other publications that line that out and to just like glance over that for oneself because the parallels are um, stunning um, and very succinct. Um, and I think that is definitely something that um, for him to, to do that, um, to offer up testimony twice is something that um, everyone needs to pay attention to, no matter what the political affiliation is. All right. Uh, let's move on then. Uh, so uh, right now, uh, there's an update in the Montana gubernatorial mm-hmm. uh, in 2020. Uh, this one is... Uh, looking to be more and more interesting. Yes. <laughs> of course, uh, Bullock, the, uh, the sitting Democratic governor, uh, is uh, ineligible to run for a third term right now. He's running for mm-hmm. president. Mm-hmm. Um, this, uh, again, Don- both Donald Trump and Mitt Romney easily won Montana in 2000. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, what was it, 2012 and 2016, um, however, no Republican has served as governor of the state since 2005. Right. Republicans now see an opportunity uh, to pick up a uh, gubernatorial seat here in 2020, but mm-hmm. the Democrats still see potential to hold on to the seat. Right now, uh, Casey Schreiner, the minority leader of the Montana House of Representatives, has become the first major Democrat to declare his candidacy in this race. Meanwhile, on the Republican side, Greg Gianforte, Mm. congressman from Montana, who was also the nominee for governor four years ago, uh, also announced his candidacy. This leaves the only seat in the House in Montana now open. Uh, And also, Corey Stapleton, the Secretary of State of Montana, who was running for this race, as he is going to withdraw because he's running for U.S. Yep. place. Yeah. So it's like dominoes. Yep. Um, so, oh, and Matt Rosendale is also running the state auditor. So what are your thoughts uh, on, uh, what are your thoughts on Gianforte getting in? And what are your thoughts on uh, Schreiner becoming the first Democrat to get in? Yeah, so uh, just I'm blown away, but not blown away because Grant Gianforte was the same person that was elected even after he slammed a reporter um, to the ground. So um, just the boldness with which he operates is um, always interesting to me. But um, and so um, this um, Democrat that's entered um, the contest is pretty interesting. Um, I, I just. I, I think what is so interesting to me, and now you have the Secretary of State as the draws because he's seeing the opportunity to keep that seat that Gianforte um, is occupying as a Republican. 
And I have to say, even as a lifelong Democrat, that it is just really time for them to stop playing checkers because Republicans play chess. And so, um, you know, it's really for me about kind of looking at the long term strategy and really getting our strongest um, candidate also to um, be in leadership in these executive offices. Um, um, the number of Republican-led states is, um, is, is pale, uh, well, the number of Democrat-led states um, in the executive offices pales in comparison to Republicans. So I think that what we're seeing how, you know, the Secretary of State, who was, as you mentioned, was... Um, uh, running for governor has stepped back and sees the opportunity, as you um, stated, to keep that seat Republican is really kind of like another reason why the Democrats' playbook really needs to be updated um, and um, definitely educate the base on strategy um, and they themselves execute strategy. All right. Um so uh, why don't we... And Nolan, if you don't mention just uh, like really quickly and just even thinking about like the Montana race, it's, you know, Steve Bullock, although he's not able to run for, you know, governor again, I still don't understand why he's running for president. Um, there's another seat that could be contested. I mean, we saw Mitt Romney, who was a former governor. Um, and then also, um, and this goes back to the playbook piece, um, the former governor from Florida, who occupies now um, a seat in Congress, um, and the same thing um, for the other governor that I mentioned. So it, that really goes back to that chestnut checkers. Um, if you know to to make sure that uh, there is um, representation of Democrats, uh, not only um, in the executive seats, but definitely within the Senate and within the House. So yeah. All right, so why don't we move on? So the special counsel is recommending that Kellyanne Conway be removed uh, from her position as White House counselor. Uh, mm-hmm. The federal watchdog uh, 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 recommended uh, to the White House that Kellyanne Conway uh, be fired uh, for what he uh, characterizes as a violation of the Hatch Act. However, uh, Trump's firing back at these accusations, saying he has no plans to fire Conway. What are your thoughts on this? And I believe Trump. And honestly, these, you know, this for me is two and a half, three years too late, because um, early on in the current administration, um, Kellyanne Conway did an interview on Fox News. And in that interview, she talked, um, she invoked uh, Ivanka Trump's brand and, you know, um, implored people to purchase it. Now, I was a formal federal employee for 10 years. And so the Hatch Act for us was very, very serious. And so these norms that have just really been um, um, skirted and just really blown over, you know, the news that I viewer who is not Christian politics like he I are because Johnson and Bobe both using the um abuses and just the finance 
that began in 2018. So um, just don't know how much weight it's going to carry in the public because there's so much happening right now. Um, I, you know, you know, great, you know, for them to actually say that out loud, but it's something that should have happened, in my opinion, um, several years ago. All right, let's uh, move on then. So uh, new polls are coming out surrounding the Democratic primary for president of the United States, uh, and they do show Joe Biden's lead has shrunk, though he still has a significant lead over his primary challengers. Joe Biden is currently sitting at 24 percent in this uh, one poll. That's about eight points over uh, his uh, rival, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who's currently sitting at 16 percent. Just one point behind him and third is uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren at 15 percent. And behind her, just a point behind her, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg at 14 percent. Kamala Harris uh, sits at 7%, and Beto O'Rourke, who, at, who when he got in was at 11%, has now dropped to just 2% uh, in polls. What are your thought on, thoughts on this new poll from Quinnipiac? Polls don't vote. <laughs> People vote. So, um, I, and, and honestly, um, again, I have to go back to kind of the fluctuating climate, you know, there was um, a Washington, um, um, a Wall Street Journal, excuse me, NBC News poll that had um, very um, up to, I believe it was today that had Biden at 32%. um, And um, then Sanders, um, well, then Warren, Sanders, Warren, um, Buttigieg and Kamala Harris, which Kamala Harris was fourth um, with, um, Pete Buttigieg up under her. So um, the sampling of the polls is always something um, I believe that people should take into consideration and that it's just, it's super early right now. And so I just would not put a lot of stock in that polling, but I think it is incumbent on uh, those candidates to continue to stomp the ground, to go out and talk to people, but then largely really to um, educate the public on who they are, um, their policies and how their specific policies that they are rolling out along with their platform impacts their lives um, for the better. So uh, I, I just, you know, believe that the numbers will continue to fluctuate up until the September time frame when people are off of vacation, um, children are back in school. And so there's a different focus, um, even with the debates coming up, you know, we'll probably get some great one-liners out of there and um, some things to chew on, but I think that for me, that the real meat, the real, um, not saying that the activity now does not matter, but when as a whole, everyone kind of comes back together and, and starts paying uh, attention will be around in the fall time. All right, so let's move on. So uh, a new uh, ABC Wall Street Journal poll uh, suggests that the majority of people uh, believe that uh, Trump did commit a crime uh, in terms of Russia. However, mm-hmm. 61% believe uh, that he should not be uh, impeached. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on this poll? Um, so, again, polls, you know, don't vote, people do. And 
um, uh, when we're looking at polls, like CBS News had a poll. And so um, that poll talked about 69% of Democrats not wanting to talk about impeachment, but about beating Trump. And then 31% wanted to talk about impeachment. So it's like, we can actually do both. I, I really believe that it's really incumbent on the leadership of those folks that were elected in the wave of 2018 to educate the public about what is happening. Um, because uh, as we you know, well know, because our time is definitely taxed so hard. People want to see things. So um, videos, short videos, um, watching things play out on television is really how people are grasping information. I believe that when we kind of um, step back and, and, and um, begin to educate the public, like the numbers um, have ticked up a little bit with the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll that 48% of Democrats do support impeachment hearings. So that looking, um, that ticked up. And so we're still talking about the summer months. So tying that all together, I believe that because um, our country is on a trajectory that um, many of us are unfamiliar with, or we've just seen in other nations um, abroad, that it is for folks that were elected to the House of Representatives and were elected by people all across the political spectrum to put a check on the executive branch to do just that. And I believe the education married with firm decisions um, and providing information that people can soak up in, you know, in a matter of, of minutes that's very succinct would definitely kind of shift those numbers. Okay, why don't we move on then? So, Hope Hicks uh, a uh, has announced um, that she will be uh, she will testify uh, in a closed door hearing in front of the House Judiciary Committee. She'll be testifying in front uh, of a uh, Democratic uh, red panel next week. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on Hope Hicks doing this? I think it's um, super interesting that uh, the Democratic, the well, excuse me, the House Judiciary Committee, um, led by Democrat Jerry Nadler, is allowing and really permitting her to testify at her, uh, with her concessions being met, that there's going to be White House counsel there along with her personal attorney. And so um, the frustration, again, is with these norms that are really being upset and bended in a way that is um, unlike anything that I, I know in my modern lifetime that I've not seen. One thing that I did um, read about that I saw that because um, that that very um, commentary that I just provided, um, there's been heat that uh, Democratic leadership has felt around that. So what they're looking to also do is perhaps potentially call in folks like um, Trump's former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, and then Chris Christie, because neither one of them served in the White House. So protected by executive privilege, which um, is really interesting that Hope Hicks um, and the administration is uh, using that as a way to say that, well, she, she can't testify. And if she does testify, okay, then these are the terms with which she'll um, testify, which is, as you said, closed door. Um, but also with the um, assistance of 
White House counsel, which is definitely, um, as we've seen with many of these leadership positions, or I've seen, is definitely um, heavy on um, protecting the current president. So um, th that um, definitely kind of adds to the frustration of really having a level of transparency. So I think it's definitely going to be interesting and hopefully there will not be uh, so much conversation that it's not digestible to the American public. All right. Uh, let's move on then uh, to the next story. So, um, right now, uh, there's new controversy with Iran. Uh, mm -hmm. Right now, uh, there was a ship which is damaged uh, or an American ship that was uh, attacked. Right now, Mike Pompeo is claiming uh, that Iran attacked the ship, although he has not provided evidence yet, and Iran has denied uh, the attack. Uh, what are your thoughts on this uh, story? Well, I would point your listeners back to, and this is not a um, plug for this um, particular for the particular uh, cable network station. I'm going to to share um, talk about um, mention. But uh, Chris Wallace did uh, on the Sunday shows interviewed um, Mike Pompeo, and I would implore your listeners to definitely go in and listen to that because he pushed him on some of the very things that you mentioned. I am a bit concerned as a former veteran, not in the Navy, but um, that um, these continued engagements will uh will not bode well um, for the servicemen and women that um, are definitely aboard these ships that are, are charged with fighting all enemies, both foreign and domestic. So uh, definitely um, sending my best to those individuals. But then also that a person that is in a position that um, owes a level of transparency to the American public will not... Um, show evidence of a claim. Um, with that being said, um, the other concern that I have is that um, within the news cycle, when something is not impressive um, concerning the current president, that then there's something that's thrown to kind of divert attention. And so my hope is that um, going um, agitation conflict with Iran will not become card to be played. So I think that is definitely something, again, going back to educating the public, that we can do several things at one time. To um, And so um, calling attention to that and, and making people aware of the happenings of that, that we should definitely um, be cognizant of that, and then push our representatives on um, letting them know that going to war um, or having conflict is not something that uh, we would want to see, particularly when there's not an immediate threat. All right. Um, so uh, let's uh, move on. So uh, right now, um, George Conway, the husband of Kellyanne Conway, uh, who supported Trump in 2016, uh, wrote uh, an op-ed in uh, the Washington Post uh, saying he believes that Trump uh, 
quote, uh, just invited Congress to begin impeachment uh, proceedings. Uh, Kanye, uh, sorry, Conway uh, writes <laughs> that, that uh, he thinks that President Trump's response is just inviting uh, impeachment. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? You know, 2016 was not that long ago, so <laughs> it seems like it was a while ago. Um, I, I, I mean, he is married to Kellyanne Conway, who served at the pleasure of the president. And I, I find it um, very interesting um, that, you know, at 2016 um, or 2017, when he assumed office, um, having... Um, his children or um, adult kids, I should say, rather employed um, vested interests uh, still, you know, right here in Washington, D.C., um, where I am, um, and just all about the globe um, with properties that he has that he still has some level of management dealings with. So, um, you know, for me, those actions are just as egregious as um, actions that he's continued to 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 commit from 2017 or 2016 um, when he was uh, president-elect on up to his current um, time as president. So, uh, you know, some people may see it as very, you know, bold. I, I see it as due diligence as someone who is also responsible for this person being in office. So... Um, I think that, you know, if that made him feel good, great for him, but it's really about getting, um, to the place of making sure that our elections remain free and fair and that the next person who is going to be president, that there are checks and balances that are executed, um, so that, um, there is a, a level of, um, confidence that the American people have about, what will and won't happen in um, in the White House as it relates to um, our own security in our elections. All right. Well, let's move on. So uh, President Trump says he is going to fight all subpoenas using his executive power. Um, multiple aides have been subpoenaed by the Democratic House, and Trump is saying he plans uh, to push back against them. He says, quote, we're fighting all the subpoenas. He goes on to say, these aren't like impartial people. The Democrats are trying to win 2020. Uh, what are your thoughts on President Trump trying to uh, fight uh, the uh, subpoenas, fight subpoenas uh, using executive power? So I'll just quote John Dean in his testimony that he provided to the House Judiciary Committee in, um, you know, in, in, in saying that he said that there is no executive privilege attached to criminal or fraudulent activity. And that is the truth. And so, um, you know, the flexibility that um, the sitting president is applying to something that is very much so um, black and white is for me, a cause of concern with those who were duly elected to hold him accountable, to check him, um, again, by all parties across the line. So, you know, just with that, I would say that, you know, it's more fodder, but is the challenge going to come from the folks that we elected? And if it doesn't, then it's really incumbent on 
um, the American people to hold um, those members of Congress accountable to say, listen, and it's not just about this administration, it's about future administrations as well. What is it that we are going to do to make sure that our democracy remains just that a democracy and protected? All right. Um, well, I think that's uh, all the stories we have today. Before you go, uh, do you want to tell people where you can be found uh, on social media and other platforms? Absolutely. So I have to say thank you, Nolan, for um, this was fun for allowing me to be a guest on your show. I would employ everybody to um, tell friends about Nolan's podcast. I'm having fun listening to it myself. Um, my podcast, again, is Savage Politics, and I can be found um, on uh, Twitter at the number one. So it's at one Erica Savage, just like E-R-I-C-A-S-A-V-A-G-E. So that's E-R-I-C-A-S-A-V-A-G-E on Twitter. And then I have a blog and podcast, as I mentioned, Savage Politics. And the blog is ericasavagepolitics.com. Would love for your listeners to read it, subscribe, and um and listen to the podcast as well and follow me on Twitter and let's engage. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Nolan. Have a great day. Thanks. You as well. Bye-bye. Uh, you know, I think if you look at Joe's record and you look at my record, I don't think there's much question about who's more progressive. He's one of the most far-left candidates in the Democratic field. His unconventional ideas have given him a cult following and made him one of the front runners in the Democratic primary. This is Bernie Sanders, and this is his story. The candidates keep America great. Their story. Yeah, you're always when you're young, you're always patted on the head and told that you're the future. But I'm interested in what you can bring to the present and their fight for the White House. I have the most progressive record of anybody running. If you look at Joe's record and you look at my record, I don't think there's much question about who's more progressive. Presidential Profiles 2020. How we could actually make this government work, not just for a thin slice at the top, but make it work for everyone else. I think that, sure, if people want to specula speculate about running mates, I encourage that, because I think that Joe Biden would be a great running mate as vice president. Bernard Sanders was born on the 8th of September, 1941 in Brooklyn, New York to Elias Ben Yehuda and Dolores Sanders, both immigrants from Russia and Poland. Sanders' uncle Abraham Sknutzer was killed during the Holocaust, and the events leading up to Adolf Hitler's election as Chancellor of Germany sparked Sanders' interest in politics. Sanders attended PS 197 in elementary school. His older brother Larry has said that although basic necessities like food and housing were affordable for the family, more expensive items like rugs or curtains were harder to afford. Sanders attended James Madison High School and joined the track team where he eventually became captain and took third place in a Nick Indoor race. Sanders ran for student body president in high school, but came in third place. Shortly after graduation, Sanders was faced with tragedy when his mother died at just 46 years of age. A few years later, his father died at just 57 years of age. 
Sanders attended Brooklyn College and eventually the University of Chicago. At the time he became a writer and started writing rape fetish erotica, which many have criticized him for to date. Sanders quickly became a political activist in college. He joined Young People's Social League and joined the civil rights movement in the 1960s. He was even arrested at one point for his involvement. He also rallied against George Beadle's segregated housing initiative and attended Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous March on Washington. Sanders also heavily protested the Vietnam War. After graduating from college, Sanders perused different jobs like being a teacher and a carpenter. However, he decided to move to Vermont in 1968. He made what he called radical educational films for public schools in the state. Ordinary citizens feel very hopeless about the future. In Burlington, we have shown that you can stand up to the system and at least you can win some good victories. Sanders launched multiple third-party campaigns on the Liberty Union Party line. In 1972, he ran for governor of Vermont against Democrat Thomas Salmon and Republican Luther Hackett. Salmon defeated Hackett by a 53-43% margin. Sanders only received 1% of the vote. Sanders also ran for Senate that year, only getting 2% of the vote against Democrat Randolph T. Major, Jr.'s 33%, and Republican incumbent Robert Stafford's 64%. Sanders made another effort for Senate two years later, this time getting 4%, as compared to Republican Congressman Richard Mallory's 46% and Democrat Patrick Leahy's 49%. Sanders ran again for in 1976, once again seeking the Liberty Union line. He faced Republican Richard Snelling and Democratic State Treasurer Stella Hackle. Sanders did slightly better, receiving a better than expected 6% of the vote. However, he still came in third as Hackle received 40% of the vote, and Snelling received 53%. Sanders finally saw his big break in 1981 when he ran for mayor of Burlington, Vermont. I won the election, I think, because we effectively put together a coalition of low-income people, elderly people who in Vermont are very often up against the world economically in very bad shape. Sanders challenged incumbent Democratic Mayor Gordon Paquette. Sanders, who had never won an election in his life, which led to many not viewing him as a serious candidate. This led to Paquette barely campaigning due to his belief that Sanders couldn't win. However, in a down-to-the-wire race, Sanders beat Paquette by just 10 votes, making him the city's 37th mayor at just 39 years of age. If I were the president of the largest bank in Burlington, I'd be real nervous about you. Well, they may be. Sanders called himself a socialist during his time as mayor, and has come under fire for statements he has made about the Soviet Union at the time. I think it's also fair to point out that when we were in Moscow, for example, I think most of the people here also were extremely impressed by their public transportation system. Sanders hosted a foreign policy speech with libertarian socialist Noam Chomsky, whom he praised. Sanders balanced the city's budget and brought a minor league baseball team, the Vermont Reds, to town. 
His legacy was most remembered for his late Champlain renovation efforts. Sanders was easily re-elected multiple times. In 1983 he defeated Democrat Judy Stephanie by 52-30% margin. He also beat Republican James Gilson who received 17% of the vote. In 1985, he faced a more serious challenger, former Democratic Lieutenant Governor of Vermont, Brian Burns as well as Independent Diane Gallagher. In spite of the challenge, Sanders won by a 56-31% margin over Burns. Gallagher received 12% of the vote. In 1987, he was elected to his final term, defeating Democrat Alderman Paul Lafayette by a 55-30% margin. In 1987, U.S. News and World Reports ranked Sanders amongst the greatest mayors in America and called Burlington one of the most livable cities. When they stood up to the bosses and the government and fought to create the unions that would provide them with decent wages and decent working conditions, freedom, dignity, the willingness to stand up against the mighty and the powerful, the human spirit strong, resilient, alive. In 1988, Vermont's single Republican congressman Jim Jeffords announced he'd retire from his House seat to run for U.S. Senate. The vacancy gave Vermont Democrats state lawmaker Paul Querrier, whilst Republicans nominated Vermont's Lieutenant Governor Peter Smith. Sanders launched an independent run for the seat. With Querrier losing momentum, Democrats turned to Sanders. On election day, Sanders lost to Smith by a 41-37% margin. A year later, Sanders retired as Burlington's mayor to focus on a rematch in 1990. This time, Vermont's Democratic Party cross-endorsed him. Smith's decision to support an assault weapons ban hurt him with gun-owning constituents. In 1990, Sanders beat Smith by a 56-39% margin. Sanders angered colleges on both sides of the aisle for accusing them of being bought off by lobbyists. Sanders started the Congressional Progressive Caucus, but refused to caucus with either party. He also fought for banking reform in the House. In 1992, Sanders ran for re-election. He faced Republican Tim Philbin. Democrats nominated Lewis Young. In spite of challenge from both sides, Sanders defeated Philbin by a 57-30% margin. Young only received 7% of the vote. They want to see our industry be rebuilt. That's what they want to see. No more B-2 bombers. No more Star Wars. Let's make the quality products we need. Let's invest in American industry. The Amer no, I won't yield. The American people want to see our kids educated. In 1994, Sanders faced his most formidable foe yet, Republican John Carroll. Carroll was gaining momentum in the race, and a strong Republican current in 1994 gave Sanders the fight of his life. Sanders ultimately beat Carroll, albeit by narrow 49-46% margin. This marks Sanders' narrowest congressional win to date. 
Sanders had more luck in 1996 when he beat Republican Susan Sweetser by a 55-32% margin. Democrat Jack Long received 9% of the vote. In 1998, he beat Republican Mark Candon by landslide 63-32% margin. He saw his biggest House victory in 2000, when he beat Republican Corin Ann Kerin by a 69-18% margin. Democrat Peter Diamond Stone received a measly 5% of the vote. Sanders retained his progressive voting record, opposing the war in Iraq. In 2002, he beat Republican Bill Mute by a 64-32% margin. Sanders ran for his final House term in 2004 when he beat Republican Greg Park by a 67-24% margin, and Democrat Larry Brown, who received 7% of the vote. Sanders ardently opposed the bailout of big banks in his final term, and opposed the Patriot Act. In 2006, incumbent Senator Jim Jeffords, who was elected as a Republican but had since become an independent who caucuses with Democrats announced he would not be seeking re-election. Sanders ran on the Democratic line to replace him. He was endorsed by New York Senator Chuck Schumer. Sanders won the Democratic primary, but rejected the Democratic line to run as an independent. Nevertheless, no Democrat appeared on the ballot, and Sanders retained the endorsement of the Vermont Democratic Party. He faced Republican businessman Richard Tarrant. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I approve this message because dishonest ads should not be part of Vermont politics. For months, my opponent, Rich Tarrant, has been spending millions telling us about himself. Well, it's his money and he can spend it if he wants, but he has no right to distort my record or what I stand for. I can't match his money ad for ad, but I'll let the truth speak for itself. I trust you to use your good judgment. Please go to my website and check the facts. Thanks for listening. Sanders beat Tarrant by a 65-32% margin. Sanders announced he would caucus with the Democratic Party, which gave them a narrow 51-49-seat majority in the U.S. Senate at the time. Sanders pushed for banking reform and supported an auditing of the Federal Reserve. Sanders opposed President-elect Barack Obama's nomination of Timothy Geithner for Treasury Secretary. He, along with fellow Democrats such as West Virginia Senator Robert Burke, Wisconsin Senator Russ Feingold and Iowa Senator Tom Harkin all voted no on Geithner's nomination, though he was eventually confirmed by the Senate. We don't know what the overall election results for the United States will be tonight. But what we do know is that this is a pivotal moment in American history. In 2012, Sanders ran for re-election against Republican John McGovern, a former Massachusetts state lawmaker. Sanders beat McGovern by a 71-24% margin, the largest victory of his political career. In 2016, Bernie Sanders made a crucial announcement. Hillary Clinton's first official challenger for the Democratic presidential nomination.
Sanders announced his candidacy for President of the United States as a Democrat. Initially, Sanders wasn't taken seriously, however, Sanders saw a huge following of younger supporters and saw a huge pouring in of donations. However, he still lacked in the polls in comparison to front-runner, former First Lady, former New York Senator and former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Madam Chair, I move that the convention suspend the procedural rules. I move that all votes, all votes cast by delegates be reflected in the official record. And I move that Hillary Clinton be selected as the nominee of the Democratic Party for President of the United States. Sanders received polarized reaction for his positions. Many praised what they viewed as parallels to President Franklin D. Roosevelt who argued for workers' rights and left-wing populism. Others criticized Sanders for his socialist voting record. Sanders won 23 states, but lost the nomination to Clinton. WikiLeaks later leaked classified emails from the Democratic National Committee revealing me-dailing occurred to help Clinton obtain enough delegates to win the Democratic nomination. Sanders endorsed Clinton's campaign for president regardless, but changed his party registration from Democrat back to independent, though he would continue to caucus alongside Democrats. Clinton would eventually lose the general election to Republican New York businessman Donald Trump. Sanders instantly became a staunch critic of Trump and campaigned for left-wing socialist candidates like himself during the 2018 midterm elections. One such candidate was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who defeated New York Representative Joe Crowley in a Democratic primary upset. This is what organizing looks like. Sanders was re-elected yet again to the U.S. Senate in 2018 by a 67-27% margin defeating Republican Lawrence Lupin. Rumors spread that Sanders would run for president again as a Democrat in 2020. In early 2019, he announced he'd do just that. If elected, he would be America's first Jewish president and would be the oldest president at 79 years of age. Polls consistently show him in second behind for former U.S. Vice President and former Delaware Senator Joe Biden. Now, he hopes to be America's 46th president. Welcome to the political revolution. To learn more about every candidate for president, keep it right here on Politics Weekly, and make sure to stay after each episode for Presidential Profiles 2020.